Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. One of our sponsors this week is the Can I Kiss You book. And if you listen to the show, you know that is actually my book. Came out in 2016, went number one for teen and young adult dating on Amazon new release. You can get that on Amazon. You can get that at datesafeproject.org. The book is Can I Kiss You? Yes, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with our special, special interview today with Leanne Thiemann a friend who I've known now for several years. We got to spend, we had a night where I was in her town. We got to hang out and talk. Just an incredible individual with an amazing personal life story. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us here today for a one-on-one with Everyday Mindfulness Show. My joy to be with you, thanks. For everyone watching right now or listening, because we do one-on-ones, you can also watch these on YouTube. And either way, you can find all about Leanne and our show at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. We'll have links to Leanne and anything we're discussing today. So know you can always go there. Leanne, right now, I really want to jump into everyone learning about you. I first learned about you through the National Speakers Association and your personal story. We'll back up to that in a moment. I'd like to start with, what do you do today? Because that was years ago, as people learn about your personal story that ignited it all. What are you doing today? Today, I work full-time as a speaker and an author. I have been lucky to write 14 of the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, so I do a lot of writing. Uh, three of them for nurses. I speak full-time to healthcare, and I've developed a year-long program now called self-care for healthcare, and speak and um, write full-time to help healthcare givers care for themselves while they're taking care of everybody else. Very cool. And you specifically teach them how to apply mindfulness to them, to their lives to do that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. So we're going to get to that a little bit later. Now we're going to jump back. So for everyone who has never met Leanne, your personal story is amazing. Uh, Can you take us back to that story and, and let our viewers and listeners learn about that journey? Well, yes, all of this began actually at the end of the Vietnam War in 1975. I was a volunteer for an organization called Friends of Children of Vietnam, and I agreed to go to Vietnam to escort six babies back to their assigned adoptive homes. But by the time I got there, bombs were dropping outside the city. President Ford had okayed Operation Baby Lift, and I got accidentally thrown into literally helping to put hundreds of babies into open cardboard boxes, strapping them in a cargo jet and flying them to the United States and eventually to their homes. In the midst of that chaos, the little boy we thought we would adopt in two or three years picked me, and I came back with our son. 
which is awesome. And so now, how old is your son today? Oh, my baby's only 42. There you go. So 42. And for anybody, if you ever get a chance to see the hand speak, you're going to want to do it because you have the images. You have the pictures. And I think people hear that, babies in cardboard boxes, they don't really understand. We literally mean a plane full of cardboard boxes with babies sitting in them. Right. Uh, you, you don't have what we had today. They weren't strapped into seatbelts. It was get them out of here so we can get them to a safer situation. That's exactly right. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and, and you yourself were in that danger. So let's go back to that time. How did you mentally wor- deal with that? How did you handle that moment of stress? Because you had, you had stress before you left. You, you found out right before leaving the situation had changed as far as the, the severity of it, if I remember right. That's correct. And so you had to make the decision to still go when a lot of people would have said, I'm out. In fact, people said to you, what are you doing under all these circumstances still going? Right. Especially since I had a wonderful husband and two little girls that were two and four years old. And I always it's important for people to hear I never would have left them if I wasn't sure I'd be back. I realized that the bombs were falling outside the city. And the only way I can explain it, Mike, is and and you know that part of my story, I was scared to death. And a part of my mindfulness is mind, body, and spirit. And I turned to my spirit, my higher power. And after the Easter service, I just knelt sobbing and um, actually actually then begging God for a sign I didn't have to go. But instead, I was just filled with this absolute courage and confidence and certainty. I'd go, I'd be back, I'd be safe. Um, I was only expected to be gone about 10 days, and I knew I'd be back fine. And so I left completely filled with confidence. And so you said something really, really vulnerable there is that you did get to a place where you were sobbing, thinking, I'm not going. Like, God just cleared me of the ability. I don't need to go. We're good. It was after the clearing that you were like, now I know I need to go. So that's so unique that you allowed yourself to say, no, I'm not going to do it. And that brought forth the safety and the confidence and the comfort. I think that's really powerful to think about. What if what everyone said, well, I don't know if I should go, I should go. Well, what would you say to yourself if you just said, I'm not going to do this? Where would you be at? And, and what clearing could that bring you? That's so powerful. And so then you get over there and it is happening, right? It's happening around you. Was there, was there ever a deterrent once you were there in that confidence? Was there ever a moment where you're like, oh no, I, this could be worse than I realized. I might not get back. Well, Mike, I'm not sure you even know that part of my story. It was absolutely. I went completely filled with confidence. We were expected to be on the first plane load out of Vietnam. Our name, our organization was number one on the list, and we got bumped from the first place position. And when I learned that, I argued and I fought and I nagged that we should be our first place position. We needed to go out first, and we didn't get that position. So instead, we just loaded 20 babies into the bus to take them to the airport to put them on an Australian airliner because we also had a chapter in Australia. And as I stood on that runway, I watched that first plane, a load of orphans, crash after takeoff. And when that plane crashed, so did I. I lost complete faith, complete confidence. And I thought I made a terrible, terrible decision. And I thought I may never get out of there. So indeed, my faith and my courage and everything was shaken. Well, yeah, and that's understand. So you had 20 babies. You see the plane crash. Now, for everyone listening right now, I think it's really important for perspective. I mean, every one of those life to you is, is an invaluable life and is lost. How many did you save after that? What was the number? Actually, half of them survived. 
Oh, so half of them survived. So just to be clear, we took the babies to the Australian airliner, and it wasn't our plane or our babies on that plane. There were four hundred. Ah. There were four hundred other volunteers and babies from another organization, and of those four hundred, two hundred survived. Okay, so it's not my so plane you, or my baby. I gotcha. But even so, you knew that could have been that could have been you. Right. right. Uh, that could have been yours. But even so, it was just human life that you just saw lost. Right. Even if it had nothing to do with the babies, it's human life. And how many babies, was it 6,000 that, that you helped get out? The organization helped all get together, out? All together, all the organizations. And they're actually, there turned out to be about five or six organizations. And 3,000 babies were rescued from Vietnam by the end of the war. Yeah. And so it's amazing to think of that. Imagine if that moment where the plane crash happened and you think, okay, I need to get home safely. And everyone bailed. Let's just say that 3,000 lives would have been left behind because of the fear of what happened to those 200 uh, you all had the courage to keep moving. What was it that did it for you to take the next step forward? At that moment, when you watched that plane crash, I know it might not have been right away. Maybe it was a day later. But what was the moment where you said, no, we have to keep going? Well, actually, I asked if I could leave because I was so afraid and I thought I would never see my family again. And when they tell you there's no plane out, except on an Operation Baby Lift plane, that sort of reframes your thinking. And then, you know, you walk into that building where there's 100 bawling babies, <laughs> And they all need you. And so we just threw ourselves right back into the work again. And in the meantime, a, a reporter called to um, all the way from Iowa, across the ocean, from my husband. They asked if I had a message for him. And when I could tell him I wasn't on the plane and that I was safe and that I knew I'd be okay and I was coming home, um, that lifted my heart again. And the squalling babies threw us right back into the work again. I had to go back to my prayer. I figured the God that sent me there would see me through it. And once I remembered that, that I was there on purpose and I was on an assignment bigger than me and the good Lord would get me through it. And indeed he did and gave me a son because two days after the plane crash, there's, there's my boy. Right. Oh my gosh. So powerful. Obviously your son and you have shared this discussion over the years. How does he, he was too young at the time, I assume, to remember anything. He was a, he was an infant. How does this impact him? How has he said he looks at his life or at the family situation, knowing everything that took place to get him free? You know, the interesting thing is um, Mitchell's first T-shirt said All-American Boy. And that's exactly how he was always viewed himself. Um, he's not very attached to Vietnam. We took him to a couple of um, camps to learn about that. And he said, no, that's okay. But, you know, that um, doesn't relate to me a bit. And so he's just quite content. He's never wanted to explore that very much. I took him to a reunion of um, the 25th anniversary of all these other grown ups and um, kids that I brought out, wasn't that totally cool? And he met yeah. with them and, and he said it was great to meet them and he did feel sort of a unique connection to them then. Um, but he's kind of gone along his whole life. You know, Mike, we sort of raised our kids a little differently. My husband happened to be a psychologist and he said, we're not gonna set Mitchell apart as being different. You're German, I'm part French, He's part Vietnamese. We're all the same family, and we and it's all the same. So we never really um, emphasized that a lot. Right. You raised him to be himself. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. Brilliant. And now you have a, you have a new child along with your two other daughters. Did you immediately go right back in, into nursing at that point? Yes. I'm, I've always been fortunate. I was a nurse I'm at the bedside for 30 years. I always worked two or three days a week, and worked part-time and raised my family full-time and had went on and did that for all the years afterwards. So at what point did you recognize or did maybe somebody helped you recognize 
my, this story needs to be heard. Well, you know, when Mitchell was a senior in high school, there was a, a number of people who kept telling me, you need, you need to write this story, Leanne, you need to write this story. And I didn't know how to write, but I knew it was time because even he didn't know it. He didn't know. As a matter of fact, there was a time in Vietnam I had to choose whether I was going to leave or stay for him, and I stayed for him. And there were so many of those things he didn't know, and I knew it was time to write the story. And so I just took every writing class and course and mentorship and workshop and seminar and writers groups and magazines and books until I learned how to write a true personal story. And I wrote our story, never guessing the world would care. I thought once maybe if I even staple it in the upper right-hand corner and hand it to my family, that was its mission. But actually, there was a much greater mission to all of it. I immediately, um, I got the book, well, not immediately. I had 21 rejections for publishers, and on the 21st, it was sold. And then I had five movie options, none of which came to fruition. And I began writing two stories for other people and Chicken Soup for the Soul, and it changed my life completely. Wow. Talk about a, a shift. I mean, that's just from one paradigm to another. How did you, I, I'm going to go back a little bit because I realized I failed to ask an important question there. You come back with seeing everything you saw. How did you get your mind at a place you could move forward without that trauma keep putting, taking you back there? How, do you, how did you move forward with that? You know, maybe the fact that I'm a nurse and I had had to learn to cope with loss and tragedy and how you you plow f through it. Um, you know, you deal with it. You turn to your self-care, to your mindfulness, to your prayer, to your family, to your support, and and you move forward. And I, I've always been able to do that. And I had a family to care for. I had this perfect, beautiful little family to care for and a fabulous husband and a career that I loved. I wept through it. I wrote through it and and plow through it and go on. Well, and I, you just said there, you wept through it, so you allowed yourself to cry, which is an important part of mindfulness. Oh, my, yes. I, I cried a lot. Yeah, it was heart-wrenching, heart heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. And when I wrote my book, I would, <laughs> a friend stopped one day, and my eyes were all red, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, I'm writing my story. And I, I would type a little bit and put my head on the desk and sob and type a little bit more and cry some more. It was a part of the journey, the, I think probably part of the healing 18 years later. I can imagine, because I know in, in when I talk with survivors in sexual violence, so many say that when they wrote, when they journaled, it was such a freeing. It wasn't that they were reliving that time. It was to let go, in their case, uh, to let go, uh, not let go, but to move forward and to be able to acknowledge those feelings and move forward. There's no letting go. There's no, it's no longer there. It's moving forward and acknowledging the hurt that they felt, the feelings they felt, and that that's okay they felt it. And writing aloud that, allowed them to speak without fear of judgment, without concern. Did you have to give yourself that kind of a freeing of what I'm going to write here could be difficult, but I'm just going to say it, and wherever it goes, it goes. Sure. And there are parts I wrote that I will never publish, that I believe that I encourage people. I speak a lot to caregivers and and so forth, and talk about forgiveness and, and letting go. I think there are times we do have to let go. And I encourage sometimes people to write things, and then often they destroy it. Sometimes they have a healing fire and, and burn it, but it's that catharsis, it's that the release of it. And when you write, it helps you sort things in, in your own mind and in, in your heart and allows you to, I think, get to a place where you can sort of release it. And you mentioned there that during that time and throughout your life, 
you've, you've allowed yourself to cry. You've allowed yourself to write. You also said to really use your mindfulness. What are specific skill sets you use for mindfulness on a daily basis? Or, or at certain times in your life, because some people use it when they need it, and then they don't use it for a while, and they come back to it, and that's their use for mindfulness. For you, what is that? What is that? How does it present itself? Well, I actually, what I believe in, and what I write and speak about now, is caring for your mind and body and spirit every day. Sometimes we make chunks of time. Well, I'll I'll pray on Sundays, or I'll exercise on a Saturday, and I'll eat right on my day off. And what I remind people to do is that even if it's in 15 or 30 minute increments to care for your mind, your body and your spirit and to pay attention to doing so every day. Um, I, my, I remind people physically, I remind them to eat and to exercise and to sleep. We have a sleep deprived nation and to be mindful at the end of the day. What time I tell people set an alarm to go to bed, not just set an alarm to wake up to be mindful of how you're spending your time. So you get the food and the nutrition and, and really do you not have 15 minutes to take it just to take the stairs instead or to walk around the block just once. And I have four mental balance tools to be mindful about. My first one is breathing that we need to stop not only in stressful times, but for every day just to stop and breathe slow, deep and easy from the abdomen, like they teach in childbirth and in and yoga. So that's one of my first mindful breathing is the first one. And the second one, I remind people to be mindful of what's on your mind, to mind your mind. I'm a big believer in, in positive thinking and, and letting go of the negative thoughts and, and encouraging the positive ones and, and remind per- people to be mindful to laugh because that's my third one and my fourth one. And this is the hugest one seems to be is forgiveness and to be mindful of the resentments and, um, and the sorrow and uh, the burden that you allow yourself to carry if you fail to forgive. And then, of course, I remind everybody to take 15 minutes a day, just 15, to connect, to connect with whatever higher power they believe in. And that's my mission in life is to share that those mindfulness practices and simple strategies with people. Do you have an acronym for it? Well, actually, I do have an acronym that's, that is C-A-R, the number four, and M-E. And the C is to connect with your higher power. The A is to ask for what you need to, get, to better take care of yourself. The R is to rest and sleep. The E is to eat right. The four is four times a day, stop and breathe. The M is to mind your mind. And the E for me is exercise at least 15 to 40 minutes a day. Love it. Care for me. That's, it. That's perfect. That's awesome. Where do you find that people struggle with that? And what are ways you help them put that back into their lives or keep it constant, consistent? Well, two things mostly. I, because I speak to um, nurses and people in healthcare, but this applies to just about everybody, is sometimes we are so busy taking care of other people. We don't take good care of ourselves. We treat ourselves in ways that we would never treat somebody that we loved. We would never deny someone we love food and nutrition and sleep, and and yet we do that to ourselves so time, sometimes. And so that's the first thing. And the second thing I remind them of, the biggest reason I hear the obstacle for them is I don't have time. So there's a whole chapter in my book on time. How do we choose to spend our time? And time is the only thing, if you think about it, everybody in the whole world has the same amount of. And so how we spend our time is up to us. And I think we let other people, we let employers and other people and society dictate our time. And now I'm kind of challenging people on the amount of time they spend on social media. 
that if you took just 15 minutes of that time to take a walk or to turn off electricity and go to bed, that to be mindful in those ways. That's powerful. What are stories that you've heard over the years of people applying that to their lives so they get to see you speak, they apply it to their lives, and then a transformation occurs and they're coming back and going, man, I have to share with you the difference. Uh, I know you get those. Can you share some examples for our listeners to see the difference that can occur? I Gosh, everything as little as, you know, I feel better. I, I, I've lost a little weight and I feel so much better. It's a powerful thing of, I think you saved my life. I get letters like that, the people that realized that they, you know, sometimes you've heard of that story of the frog in boiling water. It's the idea that if a frog jumps into a, you know, lukewarm water, it'll stay there. You just slowly turn it up. It, it'll, it'll boil from death because it slowly got burned up there. But if it jumped into water that was boiling, it'd jump right out because it, it would know this is so messed up uh, and dangerous and harmful. But you don't notice that when you're slowly brought up in it. Yeah. And I think that's happening in people's lives. They, they're in boiling water and don't realize it. And when I gently point that out to them and empower them to make some changes, then they realize, gosh, you know what? I was having this ti- I really, I was having this tightness in my chest and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just stress and it was, but it was also the early stages of heart disease. And, and so, you know, to find out some of those changes. Another part I talk about is truly living your priorities and not just giving lip service to the number one priorities in your life, but spending your time on what you say is the most priority in your life. And they get lots of feedback from people about better relationships of now, you know, instead of doing, they maybe take a walk with their loved one or um, spend more time with the people they care about. And sometimes you can do that at the same time you care for yourself. You can go for walks and read together and do spiritual things together so that you can care for your mind, your body and your spirit, which makes you just a happier, healthier person with even better relationships. Yes, I think uh, you know a good friend of mine. I think you know at least of him, Sean Stevenson. And Sean always says, you know, look at where somebody's spending your time and it tells you the real priorities, not the ones they talk about. Exactly right. That's exactly what I say. You tell me your priorities, show me your calendar. Where are you making it happen? Right. Are you spending the time with your loved one, with your spouse? Like if you say my relationship is everything, oh, how much time do you two spend with each other every day? We get about 30 minutes at the end of the day. Well, I thought you said it was everything. Where was the other 13 and a half hours uh, or, you know, whatever the time frame you could have potentially, even if you had three hours at home at night together, why did you spend two hours together and do the other hour? It's you got to choose there. Right. Right. Exactly right. It, you can. My number one priority is to live my number one priority. And I think that's important for people to pay attention to. And, to, and again, to your point, just to be mindful of, because sometimes that happens and you don't even realize it was happening. And that's what can really be a, a detriment to, to whole families. Well, I think what you just said there is so important because I think when somebody either watches this or listens to this, they think, oh, Leanne never falls into this. But you do. You, you have your moment. I do at least. I, I shouldn't say you do. I absolutely fall into this, even though I know there are times where you get out of balance, you get out and we all do it. And that's the part of being compassionate to yourself saying, oh, okay, I'm doing it. Not with judgment or anger, but can't call it, call it out loud so I can shift now. Exactly right. Society is just has everybody in such a fast pace that we sometimes just get on that treadmill and that little hamster wheel and forget that we need to step off and take our breath and reconnect and, and be mind and pay attention. Just pay attention. And so for you, Leanne, are there books that you like to read that help you put you in that right place of mind? What are ways that you help yourself 
uh, continually be in that realm of mindfulness. In addition to obviously the care for me and you doing that for yourself, are you a reader? Are you somebody that more is inspired by film or by documentary, by music? Probably a little of all of that. I I think I, I tend to be a positive thinking person, but I've worked really hard. I've read a lot of works from everything from Deepak Chopra to Wayne Dyer to obviously all the chicken soup stories are very inspiring to me. Um, and so I, because I read so many in order to write the books. And so, yes, I do read a lot and I pay attention to what I'm putting in my mind. I deliberately don't watch horror shows and negative things uh, too much. I try to keep that positive. I begin every day with 15 minutes. I practice what I preach, sit down in my quiet space and with a daily reading book, a prayer book, a meditation book, whatever every listener has. But I start every day that way to get myself focused. Um, I get up and I do 15 minutes of stretches and uh, hit the floor. I put the coffee on, hit the stretch, start hit the floor, do the stretches and do some of my physical stuff and a little bit on the weight bench. Don't be too impressed because it's a little bit on the weight bench. <laughs> but then I grab my prayer book and I spend the first hour of my day I spend preparing for my day. What do you think is the number one mistake people make on this journey of trying to be mindful and more aware? Taking time to pay attention. I think it's important when we talk about writing. Sometimes when you look at, so I ask people to make a, a wheel, um, a circle, and, and divide it into you know 24 little parts, and, and then write in how you're spending your time. And until people really log it, or you just write, write down everything you did in a day. Do that for a week. Write down everything you eat a day for a week. And, and you look at that and go, gee, who, who, who did that? And I often say to people, who's the boss of you? <laughs> who says how much you eat, how much you sleep, how much you play, how much you pray, how much you breathe, how much you laugh if you forgive. We have a lot more power to choose, and I, and I try to empower people to make those choices themselves. I love it. That is awesome. Is there a book that, or, or two that you just love to share with people and say, have you read this, or you've read it multiple times, that we can share with our listeners and viewers so they can dive into, into it themselves? Well, honestly, this isn't self-serving, but the one the book I recommend the most that people offer, except for me so much, is the book I wrote called Balancing Life in Your War Zones. And each chapter starts with a bit of Operation Baby Lift, but then the end of every chapter is um, when I stop to laugh in Vietnam, the chapter's on laughter. When I stop to forgive the plane crash, that's on forgiveness. And so I, I recommend if people want to take care of their minds, bodies, and spirits, they tell me that's a good place to start. I love it. We'll make sure we have a link to that for everyone listening right now in the show notes at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. It's on Amazon and we'll have a link to Amazon then for that. Of course, we'll have a link to your website so everybody can contact you. I want to thank you, Leanne, so much for joining us on this episode. It's my joy and privilege to be with you. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. For everyone listening and watching right now, remember to check out all of our Billing cast and special guests at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Until next time, may you make, may you make, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. 
We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.